Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan Coleman. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Dorado. If you have been here uh, last Sunday and in December, we started a short series through the book of Nahum. Uh, now, the book of Nahum, you can find it uh, right after Jonah, Micah, and then Nahum right there. It's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Today, we will finish the book of Nahum looking at the final chapter. Now, as we've walked through the book of Nahum, we've seen the continuation of the story of Nineveh from the book of Jonah, with the theme of Nahum being the fall of Nineveh. Now, just comparing the books, Jonah and Nahum complement each other. In Jonah, we see the mercy of God. In Nahum, we see the judgment of God. In Jonah, we see the repentance of Nineveh. In Nahum, we see the rebellion of Nineveh. In Jonah, we see the disobedient prophet. And in Nahum, we see the obedient prophet. In Jonah, we see deliverance from the water. And then in Nahum, we see destruction by water. In Jonah, we see the great fish. And in Nahum, we see the great fulfillment. Now, one scholar wrote this about the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum is brutal and bloody, callous and cruel, and we often wish that Nahum were not in the canon. For God is the one who incites and executes terrible judgment upon Assyria. These punishments are not softened by constantly remembering how mean Assyria were, yet softening is the approach taken by many who do not write, who do write or preach on Nahum. Only when the caveats are in place and Nahum has been satisfactorily muzzled is he allowed to mutter and muffle tones this bold and crude prophecy. Well, I hope today to not muffle God's word. Nahum 3 is not a chapter in the Bible that is comfortable for the ears to hear. However, it is in the Bible. And all scripture is inspired by God. And if we are to preach expository, verse by verse, the whole counsel of God, then this is our assignment this morning. If Nahum 2 was the description of the fall of Nineveh through a battle, then Nahum 3 is a description of the causes of Nineveh's fall. If Nahum 1 is the promise of God's judgment, then Nahum 2 and 3 are the outworking of God keeping the promises he made in Nahum 1. Now, last Sunday, we looked at Nahum 1, 12 through 2, 13, and we saw a dramatic image of Nineveh's judgment. Today, we'll finish the book in Nahum 3, 1 through 19, where we'll see that Nineveh's doom was deserved. If you have your Bibles and you haven't already turned to Nahum, find the book of Nahum and turn to chapter 3 with me, and we'll begin working through that, looking at the surety of Nineveh's judgment because of the sins of the city. We'll begin reading in verse 1 and verse 4. So we'll go from verse 1 to verse 4. Verse 1 says this, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. And verse 4 says this, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Now, what are some of the specific sins of the city of Nineveh that constitute this coming and destruction of God? Well, Nahum lists them here. Shedding blood, luring, profiteering, and victimizing. Each of these is not something that the city merely slipped into occasionally, but this is the stench of the entire atmosphere of the community of Nineveh. Nahum begins this section saying, Woe. And this is not necessarily communicating a curse. Instead, it gives expression to an agony or pain at an offense being 
witnessed. It would be like us today saying, ouch, when we watch a person receiving a punishment for a just crime. Nineveh was a bloodthirsty city, which describes their lifestyle devoted to the glory of man instead of to the glory of God. They were a city who was going to get theirs, even if it meant forcefully ripping a person of their possessions like a wild beast shredding their prey. And then in verse 4, Nahum becomes very coarse with his language here, referring to Nineveh as a whore of whores. We might be tempted to think that this coarse language is a way of speaking in a culture and error that is not as enlightened as us. But John Calvin said of this verse, it is necessary that those who are too self-indulgent should be roughly handled. By using coarse and insulting language, the Holy Spirit through the prophet displays the utter lack of a moral compass and the dark inner thoughts of the Ninevites. By referring to the city as a whore of whores, he is saying that Nineveh imitates beauty, but is full of filth. She promises instant satisfaction, but only leaves both parties with an unquenchable emptiness. She promises desires fulfilled without the work of earning them. She leads her followers down a road similar to the path of Esau, who sold his soul for a bowl of porridge that only temporarily satisfied. But yet, this is who God sent Jonah to to offer an opportunity for repentance and deliverance. Yet they chose rebellion and destruction. Now, recent archaeology has uncovered literally thousands of tablets from Nineveh, attesting to their intense concentration on sorcery. The use of magical arts was a way of life for them. The Ninevites had hope in something, but it was only in themselves and for their self-glory. The Ninevites, like a prostitute, used whomever and whatever it may be for their self-pleasure and for their self-gain, whether it be evil spirits, innocent nations, or innocent families. The victims of them selling themselves for self-gain and self-glory are nations and families. They turned entire populations of nations into slavery. And the most basic God-ordained society unit, the family, is decimated. Children, as well as fathers and mothers, are sold into gruesome slavery. Now notice this. The Ninevites came after the most basic God-ordained society unit, the family, to gratify their own sinful desires. Surely the sins of this ancient city don't still plague modern-day society, do they? It is because of the sins of the city that Nineveh's destruction is sure. For more than 200 years, they have been tormentors of all nations near and far. Nineveh's judgment is sure because of the sinfulness of the city. Now, sandwiched in between these two verses on the sins of the city, we once again see in verse 2 and 3 a vivid description of the coming assault to the city. So let's read verses 2 and 3 in chapter 3. The crack of the whip and rumble of the will, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Notice the vivid progressive imagery here portrayed of a horrific reality that is approaching. First, it can only be heard. 
through the sharp crack of the whip and the distant rumble of the chariot wheels. Then sight joins with sound as the galloping horses and bounding chariot appear. Finally, the shape of the individual horsemen charging with drawn weapons comes in to focus. Now, I have never been in a battle, but Nahum here tries to give a vivid imagery of the repulsiveness of the consequences of it. Here he illustrates three different terms for death, following the battle, painting a picture of the slain or fatally wounded. The dead bodies are those who have collapsed with exhaustion, and the corpses are those lying face down. While this may seem particularly gruesome for us today, it is important to remember the context of this judgment. After Jonah had decades earlier shared the message of salvation with the Ninevites, despite their previous unending unending history of cruelty, but now they had returned to their evil ways. We need to recognize the helplessness, the hopelessness, and the weakness of the enemies of God represented through Assyria here, but also recognize that this is a reality for anybody that is found an enemy of God. It is a fearful and tragic thing to fall into the hands of a living God after rejecting and rebelling against his plea for repentance. And then we continue in verse 5 and verse 7, as we see once again that the Lord is against the city. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink away from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Here we once again see God declare that he himself personally will bring devastation to Nineveh. God says here through the prophet Nahum, Note it well, or behold, I am against you. In one three, it was said, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And then in 2.13, was said, I am against you. And then again in 3.5, we see a redeclaration from the Lord, I am against you. God is not only against Nineveh, but he will bring her shame. One scholar put it this way, but God will expose the harlot for what she really is. Her game is up before the public eye, but also before her own face, so that she cannot hide from the disgrace of it all. Her lewd conduct shall be exposed. God will not only expose Nineveh, but he will bring her shame for everyone else to see. All of her filthy deeds will be fully known. Just like a politician or businessman today caught in a scandal with their face posted all over the internet, Nineveh's true character will be exposed and visible before all, and they will forever be remembered as a city shamed by the Lord. Not only will God shame and expose Nineveh's wickedness, God will also pelt Nineveh with detestable things, mock her like a fool, and present her as a spectacle for all to see. Those who see Nineveh's devastation and humiliation will be so startled that they will gasp with horror, hiding their faces from the gruesome shame. But then God says, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Not even the Lord himself knows where to find comforters for the wicked city of Nineveh. She must suffer alone 
and her devastation. Nineveh's judgment is sure because of their sin, and all nations agree that judgment is long overdue. But Nineveh's judgment is also sure, just as was Thebes. Let's look at the story about Thebes in verses 8 through 10. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit, Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. Now Nahum offers another ground for the certainty of Nineveh's coming judgment. Let the city consider what happened to their major rival, the city of Thebes, the capital of Egypt. The prophet begins with another rhetorical question. If Thebes had so much protection and yet it failed, are you any better off? Thebes was the capital of Egypt at this time and had natural barriers due to its geographical location that made attacking the city a challenge. It was on the eastern bank of the Nile and was situated among a system of rivers and canals found in and around it. Thebes also had a network of allies, Kut, Cush, Put, and Libyan, surrounding it that made the city even more unlikely. Yet Nineveh defeated them. The battle of Thebes is surely one that Nineveh boasted in as its greatest victory. God reminds them, are they any better situated than Thebes? Thebes also had neighboring supporters in Cush, Egypt, Put, and Libyan. Who could Nineveh boast in that would help them compare? No neighbors loved and supported Nineveh. And so Nineveh may expect the same as we see in verses 11 through 13. You will also be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All of your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open and your enemy's fire has devoured your barbs. Against the adversary of the Lord, Nineveh was hopeless and helpless. They were like a staggering drunk, like a panicked fugitive, like a trembling fig tree, like a feeble woman, like a city with the gates thrown open. Nineveh may have boasted in their conquering and destruction of Thebes. They may have shouted with glee as they publicly destroyed the family units of the Egyptian children. Yet having sowed the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. Nineveh can expect the same fate as Thebes. Against the adversary of the Lord, Nineveh was hopeless and helpless. And then we see that Nineveh's judgment is sure despite their strength in verses 14 through 18. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the, wick, of the brick mold. There will be fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your sheep are asleep. Your shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. 
Let's remember who this is writing this. It's most likely that Nahum was a little-known figure, and he wrote this prophecy at the height of arrogance in the history of Nineveh. They had just entered Thebes a second time after conquering it and brought back treasures that were beyond counting. Here's this little-known figure in a country that they have dominated who was speaking against the wicked giant of their day, declaring that their destruction is sure despite all their strength and wealth. Nahum encourages the Assyrians to contemplate the pointlessness of every human effort to escape the coming judgment of God. He says, preparations will do you no good. Draw the water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Immerse yourself in the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Pointless preparations. It will do you no good. Numbers will do you no good. Multiply yourselves like the locusts and the grasshoppers. Have more people than the stars in your kingdom. It will do you no good. Numbers mean nothing to the Lord's judgment. Your officialdom will do you no good. Because of the population of Assyria that was so great, their leaders were also countless. However, though they are great in number now, they will dissipate quickly, and no one will know where they are when the Lord brings judgment upon Nineveh. The shepherds are asleep. The nobles slumber. Your vast number of leaders will do you no good when your adversary, the Lord, approaches. Nineveh is literally a dissembled people scattered like sheep without a shepherd, while the great shepherd is protecting his sheep from any farther harm. And then we see in verse 19, the final tragedy of persistent sin. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? There is no comfort for Nineveh. Their opportunity for repentance has come and gone, and they chose rebellion. Perhaps the most tragic part of this story occurs in this verse. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. Without modern media, as the story spreads throughout the world, a vigorous, jubilant, uninhabited applause will break out at the death of Nineveh's king. There will be dancing in the street, celebrating with one another. The evil empire that had oppressed God's people for so long has been defeated. This is comfort and victory for Israel. But what did the king of Nineveh expect? Who had not come against his unceasing evil? No nation had been spared of their brutality, why would those who had been tormented by the Ninevites for generations shed tears at their death? Continuously, the king had brought havoc among the nations and relentlessly tormented them. In radical contrast, the God of Israel has shown himself to be continually patient and long-suffering. This Continuous patience of the Lord with Nineveh should have led them to repentance permanently. But they chose rebellion. Instead of deliverance, they chose destruction. Instead of mercy, they chose judgment. Our big idea for today is this. God is a God of mercy and justice. 
His judgment is coming for those who do not accept his mercy. So what do we do with this vivid last chapter of the book of Nahum? Well, I simply have two takeaways for us this morning. The first is this. God's character never changes. In the story of Nahum and Jonah, there was much for God's people to be fearful of, especially in light of the Ninevites. Today, there is a lot that we can be fearful of. Just in general, COVID, the economy, political changes. And for the believer, we think through the past year where churches were told in some states that they could not meet. And even just this past week where there were rumors of basketball teams not being allowed to play in a tournament because of their religious beliefs. These are some things that might cause us to be fearful. But in the book of Nahum, we're reminded that God is a God who fights our battles. That he is in control or he is sovereign. For Nineveh, this was tragic judgment. But for Israel, this was comfort in victory. Today, if we think about the truths found in the book of Nahum, then we recognize that we cannot allow fear to cause us to try to avenge ourselves. In fact, God tells us clearly in Scripture, in Deuteronomy 32, Hebrews 10, and in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Remember how bleak the decades and generations of torture and victimization may have looked to Israel? But God is a God who was fighting their battles in the right time, in the right moment, and in the right way. God is in control, even when we can't see it. God is in control, even when we fail to realize it. Today, because of the story of Nahum, let's be reminded that God's character never changes. He is sovereign. Think how fiercely God came after the Ninevites in this story of Nahum. We saw a lot of vivid imagery of the coming judgment and how unpleasant it would be. God was bringing judgment because they had refused repentance. But the severity of the judgment that God was bringing was in part because of the gruesome way that they had treated God's people in Israel. God fiercely loves his people, and God is sovereign. Today, if you are in the storm, if you are in the battle, and you're weary, remember the Israelites who faced generations and decades of torture and victimization. But then God brought comfort to his people that he fiercely loved. God's character never changes. He is sovereign, and he fiercely loves his people. Remember in 1.3 that we saw the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And in 2.13 and 3.5, we see God declare, I am against you. This is an unwavering trait of God. He cannot be associated with sin. The Ninevites, even in their wickedness, were offered an opportunity for repentance but chose rebellion. They were offered deliverance but chose destruction. Judgment is sure for all who refuse God's mercy and are found in unrepentant sin. The reality of judgment is it's something to be feared. If anything, the book of Nahum points to this truth. You don't come away after reading the book of Nahum and say, well, 
God's judgment doesn't seem so bad. No, it's something to be feared. God is to be feared. Psalm 112.1 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Luke 1.50 says, And his mercy is for those who fear him. Now, in much of my growing up in church, there wasn't much talk of fearing God. But there wasn't a lot of talk of God is your friend and God loves you. And those are 100% true, but they also need to be coupled with a healthy fear of God. And if you played sports, think about a coach that you admired. Or if you had a godly earthly father or mother, think about their example of knowing that that person desires what is best for you and wants it more than anything in the world, but also knowing that if you step out of line, then you're running laps or you'll receive punishment at home. Now, understand fearing God in this way. In Luke 1.50, the word used for fear means to have profound reverence and respect for deity with the implication of all bordering on fear. God is to be feared. And our fear or reverence and respect for him should drive us to obedience, to delight in his commandments. The Ninevites did not fear God. They did not have reverence or respect for him, and it did not drive them into obedience. Instead, their arrogance drove God to declare, I am against you. They were guilty. They were offered an opportunity to fear the Lord, but yet chose to rebel. God's character never changes. He is sovereign. He, is fierce. he does fiercely love his people, and he will by no means clear the guilty. A second takeaway for today is this. The sinfulness of man has not changed. One of my favorite all-time books on the topic of worship is called Unceasing Worship by Harold Best. In his first chapter, he makes the argument that nobody does not worship. Now, what best means by this is that we all worship something, whether we admit it or not. Usually the two options are either that we declare that we are the object of worship or that God is. Nineveh worshiped themselves. They had every security known to a city in their day. They had the best army. They had the best defensive systems, the most wealth. They wanted for nothing. But they put their hope in the wrong place. They placed their hope in the created security instead of the only true and hope of security, of which is God alone. Nahum referred to Nineveh as a prostitute because of the way that they sold their souls to gain the security, wealth, and pride that they, they had in being a citizen of the city of torment. I wonder if there are ways today that we sell ourselves to gain temporary satisfaction. Today, it's a temptation that we feel the need to have things that make us feel secure. We're okay if we have this much money in the bank or savings. We'll be okay if we just have this house or if we just have this house paid off. We'll be okay if this person is in political office. We'll just be okay if our doctor checkup goes this way. We'll just be okay if fill in the blank. We can fall in the same trap as the Ninevites, forgetting that our only hope and our only security is in God alone. 
If we find our hope and security in the temporary satisfaction of toys, trinkets, or things that will fade away, we are simply falling into the same trap of selling ourselves for temporary satisfaction as Nahum referred to Nineveh as doing. Nobody does not worship. Who are you worshiping today? God or yourself? In 3, 8 through 10, Nahum refers to the city of Thebes that was a mighty city of its day, but yet was conquered by the Assyrians and Ninevites. Surely Nineveh boasted in this success as one of its greatest victories ever. Yet Nahum says to them, if the great city of Thebes could be conquered, then what makes you any better? We can all be guilty. Listen to me when I say this. We can all be guilty of seeing the destruction of others and thinking it will never happen to us. Today, we may be guilty of these thoughts. I'll never fall into this trap. Or I'll never get caught. Or I could never do the sin that that person just did. Christian, hear me when I say this. Guard yourselves. The reality is that we are all sinful and we must put up barriers and safeguards to protect ourselves from our own sinfulness. So how do we do this? If you're in a particular sin, don't think that you can dig your way out. Find another believer, a Bible study teacher, a church leader who you can trust and be honest with them. Make a plan and fight your sin together. If you struggle with a particular reoccurring sin, set boundaries that you refuse to cross and have others that will call you out if you cross them. None of us can think that we are above sin or our fate may be the same as the Ninevites. Think about this. The fate of the Ninevites would be the fate of us all if it were not for Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ's righteousness imputed upon us, God could not be associated with any of us. The book of Nahum reminds us to be grateful for Jesus. The sinfulness of man has not changed. God is a God of mercy and justice. His judgment is coming for those who do not accept his mercy. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Believer, the story of Nahum reminds us that God is in control, that he is sovereign. For those of us who are believers, the question comes down to this. Are you trusting God to be in control? God doesn't need our worry. He doesn't need our anxiety. He needs our trust. Are you trusting him to be in control? Maybe you need to come to the altar today and lay down your worries and anxieties. Remember this, anxiety and worry are an outworking of fear, and fear is not a fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you need to cast your anxieties on him today because he cares for you. Believer, maybe you're in this place today and you're losing the battle of sin. You know it, God knows it, but you're fighting a battle that you're not winning. God wants to help you fight your battles, and he is giving you brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside you and help you with your fight with sin. Would you allow others to help you today? There is no pride or judgment in the family of God. 
We are all trying to become more like Christ daily, and we cannot do it on our own. Let's fight our sin together. Today, find someone, make a plan, develop some safeguards, set up some barriers, and let's fight our sin together. Unbeliever, God's character never changes. Just as God declared he would by no means clear the guilty to the Ninevites, he declares the same for us today. Romans 6.23 says this, the wages of sin is death. The payment for our sin, which we are all sinners, is eternal separation in a real place called hell from God forever. The judgment that we saw on earth for the Ninevites is nothing compared to the judgment that will await those who are destined for hell. But the second half of Romans 6.23 says this, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today, God is extending mercy to you. God loves you so much that he made a way that you can be reunited with him for all of eternity in a place called heaven. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to earth as a baby. Being fully God and fully man, he lived a perfect sinless life here on earth, yet went to a cross and died for our sins. Three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. Today, if you are in this place and you have not placed your hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can go today from being guilty in the eyes of God to being a child of God. You can swap sides. It is not too late if you have breath. If you repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and follow him the rest of your days. Have you done this? If not, today is the day of salvation. Would you accept his mercy before you receive his judgment? God is a God of mercy and justice. His judgment is coming for those who do not accept his mercy. I'll pray, and then you come.